If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available for you to binge for free right now on Spotify. A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. Do you remember this song, uh, Wind of Change? It goes like this. The one goes... Follow the Moskva, don't go park. Listen to the wind of change. Yeah, do you remember that one? Da, конечно, конечно, da. I'm in Kiev, which, if I'm being honest, I've always pronounced Kiev, but recently learned I've been saying wrong my whole life. It's Kiev. It's mid-November, and Kiev is all over the news. Back in Washington, the House of Representatives is holding impeachment hearings into efforts by Donald Trump to pressure Ukraine's president to investigate Joe Biden. Ukraine is trending on Twitter. The president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, may or may not be in Kyiv himself right now, attending to some shady business. If you're an investigative reporter, this is the biggest story in the world. But that's not why I'm here. I'm standing outside the Sports Palace, a big stadium in the center of town that dates back to the period when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Night has fallen, and I'm out here with a bunch of Ukrainians who are passing around two-liter bottles of Pepsi that they've spiked with vodka. We're tailgating before a scorpions show. We like scorpions very much. You like scorpions? <laughs> yeah, really? Always, your whole life, or? Uh, yeah, really, all life, uh, from childhood. This is a group of younger fans. They're in their 30s. They came all the way from Odessa, which, they tell me, was a 10-hour drive. I see. So you came just for the show? Yeah. Well, we came from New York just for the show. So. <laughs> cool. <laughs> You're really great fans. Yeah. What songs do you like? You uh, and me. Wind of, wind of Change. Hurricane! This is Sergey and his friend Yuri, two beefy guys with bleary eyes and shaved heads. They look like bouncers or guys who may be freelance for the mob. But they're wearing Scorpions t-shirts and big smiles and arguing about the origins of Wind of Change, this song that, according to this story I heard, may have actually been written by the CIA. Da, 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 da. What did he say? Da, da. He said the Wind of Change, they, they created the song as far as he remembered because the Soviet Union was about to apart and it was like Wind of Change to, that blows into something like a fire of evil. That's my friend Roman, a Ukrainian journalist who's translating. Fall, uh, b- b- burn, Berlin Wall. Uh, Berlin yeah. Wall, yes. Yeah, that time, Scorpions uh, make the... Now they have an argue because he said it was because of Berlin Wall uh, and he was about like, oh, it was about USSR. It about was, was about called USSR. I think it was about both. You can see how, if the CIA did have something to do with wind of change, this is exactly the sort of message they would want to celebrate and encourage. Sergei explains that when he was in school back in the 1980s, it was against the rules to have any albums or pictures of Western rock bands because they were considered anti-Soviet. But he brought some pictures of the Scorpions to school. And uh, he got in trouble with, uh, with his teacher. And, oh, really? And his parents were yes, called really, to really. The, the principal. This is something I've heard from a lot of fans. During the Soviet era, Western rock was frowned upon by the state. So it was a little act of defiance just to listen to a band like the Scorpions. 
one of the tailgaters, this guy Oleg, tells me all those years I listened to the Scorpions back when it was dangerous to listen to the Scorpions. I never dreamed one day I'd get to see them play live in Ukraine. The Scorpions are not young, but like a lot of older bands, they're still touring. I've always been curious about why bands do this, or at least bands that don't need the money. And the Scorpions don't need the money. They've done well over the decades. Why keep going? It's a punishing way to make a living. But I think this has to be part of the answer, the passion of these fans. It's a weird time in Ukraine. The country is at war with Russia. Roman comes from Donbass in eastern Ukraine, where Russian-backed separatists are fighting their own government. On our way to the concert, we walked past Maidan Square, where just a few years ago, in 2014, government snipers fired on unarmed protesters. But tonight, the fans aren't thinking about whatever troubles they might have. Everyone's focused on the show and just excited to be here. We splurged on something called golden fan tickets, which put us right on the floor, front and center, a stone's throw from the stage. The stadium is heaving. There's not an empty seat. No opening act tonight, just the main event. And the crowd roars as the music starts and the scorpions take the stage. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. I'm Patrick Radden Keefe. Episode two, you call it an operation, we call it a performance. When I first heard this story, all of a sudden I could hear the whistling in the back of my mind and I could see the uh, thousands of people holding their lighters aloft going back and forth. And I was like, yeah, that could have happened. Tommy Vitor was President Obama's top spokesman for national security. That could be the most ingenious covert action campaign in the history of the United States government. He had a security clearance that was higher than top secret, and every day he had to work out which details of secret operations he could divulge to the public. I wanted to ask Tommy who would know about a highly classified operation. Apparently, it's not always as clear as you'd think. One sort of funny example of that is one of the first people to tweet about, disclose, talk about Osama bin Laden's death was Dwayne The Rock Johnson. (laughs) And I don't know exactly why. Yeah. He tweeted, uh, just got word that will shock the world, land of the free, home of the brave, damn proud to be an American, all caps. So I don't know how he figured it out. He d- he tweeted this before the president's speech. I'm pretty sure he tweeted it before. Yeah, it's pretty sure he tweeted it before people like me were confirming it on background or reporters. But I, I my guess is that he's got a bunch of friends or acquaintances in the special forces community. And a whole bunch of them were talking about what happened. I I bet a whole lot more people knew about that operation before and after it went down than we thought at the time. It wasn't like Obama was ready to go out and give his speech and then it's, wait, what the fuck? Yeah, no, no, the the rock didn't preempt (laughs) him. But it was a cryptic enough tweet that I think you wouldn't have known what he was talking about until after. But like after the revelation, people are certainly like, how the hell did he know? These days, Tommy has a podcast. He co-hosts Pod Save America and also Pod Save the World. And as it happens, he's one of the producers of this podcast. So I wanted to talk to him at the start of our investigation 
to see if he believed that Wind of Change could have secretly been written by the CIA. It immediately makes you smile, and it rings true because as much as the United States tries to project its power through the military and by invading places and bombing things, ultimately the culture and the values of the place has proven to be more powerful. What you're describing is sort of a classic covert action campaign. It's a classic covert propaganda effort. It's also really weird with with something like a song, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny question. I've been thinking about it a lot, too. It's like, what does it mean for the CIA to have written a song? It doesn't necessarily mean that a bunch of nerdy analysts went from poring over State Department cables and transcripts of you know, Soviet troop movements and all of a sudden started banging out lyrics. It could mean that they funded through covert means some professional songwriter to draft something for them that they later provided to an artist. Right. It's so fascinating because it does all boil down to whether or not the CIA was sponsoring these like covert cultural efforts against the Soviet Union. The Soviets were terrified of Western culture either way, right? Like it was Bruce Springsteen's butt on the cover of an album with an American flag behind him. And like that was the most American thing on the planet. Do you think we're going to figure this out? God, I don't know. I mean, it sort of feels like you just got a building full of people that traffic in secrets and have beat into them from the minute they get to the farm that they can never ever disclose them or they are traitors, you would need one person to just say, yeah, this happened. Someone who knows, kind of catch them off guard. Like, oh yeah, how'd you know that? (laughs) And what gives me some confidence that we can figure this out is that it would have happened so long ago. And yeah, it would technically still be classified, but It's a story of a win. This isn't some blight on the nation's history. This would be an example of incredible creativity advancing the U.S. interests. Like, wouldn't you hear a story like that and think, oh, wow, the CIA is is pretty damn impressive. Maybe I'll consider joining that organization if I'm a college kid. Or an aspiring musician. In a lot of countries, the question of whether or not the government had initiated a covert action campaign to spread a propaganda message by writing a pop song would be the sort of question you could just never answer. Too secret. Not your business. But in the United States, at least in theory, it's different. We have transparency in this country and accountability. The intelligence agencies work for us. So there's no reason a decades-old soft power intel operation would need to remain classified. In fact, we have this amazing law in this country which allows any citizen or news organization to go onto the website of the CIA or any other federal agency and file an official request for the answer to that kind of question. You just ask them, is it true? It takes five minutes. And under the Freedom of Information Act of 1967, they are legally obligated to respond. The State Department released 100 pages of documents related to the impeachment inquiry. You never before seen documents from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of the Russian interference. You've probably seen BuzzFeed get secret memos from the Mueller investigation, or the Washington Post publishes a groundbreaking series that's basically the Pentagon Papers for the war in Afghanistan. Thousands of pages of government documents that appear to reveal that our government wasn't always telling us the truth. They got all those documents through this law, the Freedom of Information Act, which is pretty amazing. 
right? Well, it's complicated. As a journalist, I use FOIA, as we call it, all the time. It really is incredibly easy to file a request. In fact, if you talk to people in government, they'll tell you it's too easy. You get some Yahoo who stayed up all night on some conspiracy theories subreddit. He can fire off five, 10, 50 requests. There's no limit on the number you can file. And it doesn't matter that he's objectively a crazy person. The government has to respond. But here's where it gets counterproductive. Because anyone can file a request, you end up with this backlog. And not just your standard DMV-style government bureaucracy backlog. This is the mother of all backlogs. So you send off your request, and the government will reply that you've been placed in a queue for processing. And the thing is, unless you're very resourceful or very lucky, you can wait in that queue for years. These news outlets that actually have some success with FOIA, that's because they hire lawyers and sue the government, which is really the only way to get what you're looking for in this lifetime. The good government group took the Department of Justice to court, and that is how these 3,000 pages have just been forced out. If you don't have a lawyer and you're not ready to sue, your request might as well be a letter to Santa. You fire it off, you have no idea if anything's gonna come of it, and you wait. But it's a good initial step, and it does only take five minutes. So when I first heard the Scorpion story from my friend Michael years ago, I wrote to the CIA. Under the Freedom of Information Act, 5 U.S. Code, subsection 552, I am requesting all documents related in whole or in part to direct or indirect contacts between the Central Intelligence Agency and the West German rock and roll band, the Scorpions. I mean, it felt a little ridiculous, but I figured, why not just ask? And if it took a while to hear back, I had time. In the meantime, I sought out a few old agency hands who I thought might have been in a position to know about such an operation. At a Starbucks in Washington, D.C., I met this courtly old man named Bert Gerber, who spent 39 years at the agency, running what they call SE Division for Soviet and Eastern Europe. Gerber didn't want to appear on this podcast, but he told me he didn't believe the story was true. If it was, given his leadership position at the end of the Cold War, he would have known about it, and he'd never heard the story. Gerber seemed nice and very sincere. He signed off all his emails to me with, God bless America, exclamation point. I totally believed him. But then I called Michael, my friend who relayed the story to me in the first place, and he laughed at me and said, Patrick, this guy spent 40 years meeting people like you and charming them, lulling them into a false sense of trust, and then lying brazenly to their faces. So I sought out Gerber's successor as head of SE, this guy Milt Bearden, another legendary spy. Milt didn't want to be on this podcast either. What is it with these guys? But when I asked him about the Scorpions, he was a little more cryptic, careful. He told me, that sounds like the kind of story that's too good to check. So Oliver told Michael he heard this story about the Scorpions, heard it from an older guy at the CIA. And my friend Phil, who was at CIA at the same time as Oliver, thinks it definitely could have happened. But Phil never heard the story himself, and he has no way to know for sure. And these two very senior old-timey CIA guys are either outright dismissing the idea or, according to Michael, maybe being less than 100% forthcoming with me. And I discovered this one other tantalizing clue. Sie wussten natürlich diesen Song jetzt schon unglaublich oft pfeifen in den verschiedensten Situationen, einmal sogar für den CIA. This is an old interview that Klaus did years ago on German radio. He's just talking about the band and the history of Wind of Change. And then the interviewer says, tell us about the time you whistled the song for the CIA. 
Und äh, ich kam gerade irgendwie unter der Dusche vor und hatte das, das Handtuch so um die Hüften geschwungen. Auf jeden Fall stand diese Dame vom CIA vor der Tür. The band was in Memphis once, back in the 1990s, Klaus explains. And he got a call at the hotel where he was staying, saying that a woman from the CIA was there and she wanted to see him. Und sagte, Mr. Meine, please, could you whistle Wind of Change for me? <laughs> Können Sie Wind of Change for me pfeifen? And this lady from the CIA stood at the door, Klaus says, and she asked if I could whistle Wind of Change. So Klaus whistled the song for her, and she left. <laughs> Heute dürfen Sie komplett angezogen bleiben und wir hören Fantastisch. So this struck me as a pretty interesting story. And then I got a letter back from the CIA. I'll read it to you after this quick break. So I've got the letter here. Dear Mr. Keefe, an information and privacy coordinator at the agency wrote to me. The mission of the Central Intelligence Agency is primarily concerned with foreign intelligence. The information you request insofar as we can discern, has nothing to do with the primary mission of this agency, and therefore, we must decline to process your request. Insofar as we can discern? Was the CIA being sarcastic with me? I'll be honest, this kind of pissed me off. Not so much for the tone, but because it was so baldly disingenuous. The CIA has never confined itself to gathering foreign intelligence. And I don't just mean fomenting coups or targeted assassination. I mean more specifically that there's never been some kind of firewall between the agency and the world of pop culture. Aliens and robots? Remember Argo, the Ben Affleck movie? You're telling me that there is a movie company in Hollywood right now that is funded by the CIA? It won the Oscar for Best Picture in 2013. That movie's based on a true story that during the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980, the CIA successfully exfiltrated a bunch of hostages under the guise of producing a movie. They posed as directors and producers and had an actual script for this movie they were supposedly going to make. It was a Star Wars ripoff, and a production office and storyboards and all the trappings of a real Hollywood film. The United States government has just sanctioned your science fiction movie. The whole reason the Argo ruse worked is that real Hollywood people were involved, which gave the fake movie credibility. And that would suggest that there's definitely precedent for this idea that some entertainers have occasionally cooperated in secret with the CIA. So I wrote back indignantly to the CIA and I pointed out that there's a long history of the agency dabbling in the cultural sphere. I directed them to this article on the CIA's own website by Tony Mendez. That's the guy Ben Affleck played in Argo. I had engaged the services of many consultants in the entertainment industry, Mendez writes. This was fascinating to me and seems relevant to the question of whether the agency might have worked with the Scorpions. This idea that the CIA secretly collaborated with people in the arts. In fact, Tony Mendez himself initially joined the CIA as an artist. Back then, the ad that he answered was, artist to work overseas for the U.S. Navy. And he thought, well, that sounds interesting. Tony died last year, but this is his widow, John Mendez. He could, just whatever was in front of him, he would copy it. He would draw it. It's perfect for a forger. At the CIA, Tony became an expert in creating fake identification documents from any country, so perfect they would fool an inspector at a border crossing. He also became a master of disguise. That's where Jonna met him. She's a retired spy, too. I spent my career at CIA, 27 years, all of it in an office called Office of Technical Service. So we were the queue. 
for CIA. Q as in the gadget inventor from the Bond movies. Her adventures in technical services started when her boss at the time suggested she take a photo class. He said, um, take some of our courses. I know you like photography. The CIA has photo courses? Our office did. Not with 35 millimeter cameras so much. With proprietary cameras, proprietary film. She signed on for a photo course called Airborne Platforms, which honestly, just seeing that title would have given me pause. First day of class, she was directed to an airfield outside the city. And I went down and they had a little twin engine plane, a little one. There was a guy on a ladder with a paint bucket and a brush. He's painting out the tail number. He was painting out the tail number. So if anyone spotted the plane, they couldn't trace it back to the CIA. They had a harness in the back and a headphone. And they gave me a 35 millimeter camera with a thousand millimeter lens, which is a long, heavy camera. And we, we spent a day flying around, flying, shooting license plates and radar sites. The first day of this course, they put you up in a plane mm -hmm. with a, sticking a camera out the window and... No, no, there was no window. There was just open sides. They had removed. Were you not terrified? Oh, God, no. I'm terrified just listening to you. That's so fun. That's one of the best days. That's like being on a roller coaster all day long. One point I said, hello, can we go? And we were, we were by water, that's why I asked. We were by the Chesapeake Bay. He said, I'll show you. And we're just skimming across the water. It felt like you could <laughs> touch it. So Jonna became a photo operations officer. I was working in photo labs across the street from State Department. I had no idea that John Ford had set up those photo labs right at the Second World War, and those were his labs. He was the one who put them in place. And John pulled, Ford, the filmmaker. Yeah, and pulled in all his buddies, photographers from Hollywood, to do some work. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. She worked with a secret guild of craftspeople artisans who created classified gadgets for the CIA. And my cameras, when I was out and about running around the world, were little tiny cameras, and they're called mm. Tropel. Very small cameras. You could put them in a lipstick, big lighter, you could put them in a fountain pen, like a Mont Blanc. A cigarette lighter would still light a cigarette, and we could still smoke back then. They were active concealment devices. Can which I ask? Meant they all worked. I hear you talking, and I think... How did you recruit the kinds of people who could design and make these things? Like today, those people would be working at Apple. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe they're working at the agency no, today. It was really, How did you find them? My husband was picked as a trailblazer, one of the 50 top CIA officers in its first 50 years. It was another man that was picked. His name was Paul Howe. He designed that tiny camera. There was an eight-element lens in there. It was excruciatingly precise. We only had one man who made them, and he handmade each camera. And so we decided we needed more. We couldn't do this single source thing. We needed another production run of these cameras. So we went to all the major optical companies in the United States, and we took them our camera. We said, can you build us some of these? And they all said, that's not possible. There was never another source for those cameras. Just one guy. You knew people were risking their lives to take these pictures. Right. And the last thing you wanted to do was somehow have it jam up and have them take that risk for no reason. When Jonna talks about her career, you can feel this tension between the pride she clearly feels and her desire to share these wild stories on the one hand 
and her sense that she still needs to police what she says on the other. I went to, um, this is off the record. Sure. Now we're back on the record. <laughs> I, was, I was called up there from uh, where I was living, which was off the record. Back on the record. And it was an emergency, and I went up with my boss, and my boss said, this is a photo operation, bring your cameras. So I did. And I got up there, and my boss was an idiot. Keep that on the record. <laughs> he just, he just died. That's off the record. <laughs> she let us keep that last part. Eventually, she ended up working with her husband, Tony, and specializing in disguise. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get the document and bring Anna Kurkowska to safety. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. That's the old TV show Mission Impossible, which premiered in 1966 and eventually spawned the Tom Cruise movies. One of the show's signatures was that the spies would often disguise themselves in these ingenious, hyper-realistic latex masks. It was always a big showstopper moment when they peeled the mask off, like a second skin. The show aired Sunday nights on CBS, and everybody watched it, including the CIA. And then we get phone calls from their own officers saying, I just saw this thing on Mission Impossible, and I'm wondering, have we tried that? Can we do that? It's just, it's fascinating because I think so often we tend to think that it's like Hollywood watching the spies and sort of imitating or doing what they think the spies are doing. It was amazing to me to think that you'd actually have a situation in which the agency is watching Hollywood. Yeah. And this was how Tony Mendez became friends with the Hollywood makeup artist, John Chambers. You can't build cover stories around a movie that doesn't exist. You need a producer. That's John Goodman playing Chambers in Argo. He was kind of the old man of Hollywood. He did Planet of the Apes, right? Planet of the Apes was when he really made his mark. He has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Tony said that he was one of the few geniuses he thought that he ever met was John Chambers. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the idea of somebody who's out there and exists in Hollywood and they have a career and they're doing what they do. And then at a certain point, they get tapped on the shoulder by somebody who says, hey, could you help us out? But I just wonder if there's anything you know or any insight you can shed into that and like what those relationships would look like. Because this is not, a, this is not an agent on foreign soil. No. He's here in the U.S., but he's helping out, it sounds like, for years and years. We'd say, you have, you have some skills that we're very interested in and we'd like to know if you'd like to help your government and work with us. And clearly he said yes. And the next step would be that our contracts people would go out and present him with a classified contract. Chambers couldn't tell people, and we certainly couldn't tell people that John Chambers was working for us. Right. So you have this understanding, you have this classified relationship for years. In Hollywood, Chambers had hours to make up an actor, but the agency's needs were different. What we needed was something basically, that you could put on in a parked car in a dark garage and that you could step out the door and you knew that it was perfect. For years, Chambers and Tony worked closely together. Sometimes Tony would go hang around film sets in L.A. and Chambers would introduce him around, saying he was an old army buddy. Most of this, this extreme stuff, we did for Moscow because Moscow was so difficult for us to work there. We didn't need masks in... I don't want to name a country, it'll offend them. In Western Europe, we didn't need I love that they would be offended by you saying that you didn't need masks there. <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Western Europe wasn't just smothering us with surveillance. Surveillance was there. Moscow was smothering us. With Chambers' help, the CIA got so good at making masks that when George H.W. Bush was president, Jono once went to the Oval Office to brief him while completely disguised in a mask. Before his time in the White House, Bush had done a stint as director of Central Intelligence. That's why it was so much fun. I had pictures of him in disguise that I brought. I said, I'm the new chief of disguise, and you might remember yourself in this wig, and you know, this is what we were doing. When did he wear disguises? When he was head of CIA for some meetings that he had overseas. Ah. Yeah. So, so you, re you reminded him. I did. I said, well, we've improved. We're a little better than we used to be, and I'm here to show you the latest disguise. He said, where is it? I said, I'm wearing it. So I did the Tom Cruise thing. You peeled the latex off? And I'm holding it in the air. And he's, he's loving it and the White House photographer. Is there a wig too? Yeah. So it's a, it's a face and a wig? Yeah. So you're holding up, it looks like you've just beheaded yourself, basically. It does, it does. A White House photographer captured the moment. But when Jonna wanted a copy of the picture, they couldn't give her one. It took her 10 years to get that photo. The mask technology was so cutting edge, even a snapshot of it was classified. And I would imagine the state of the art has improved to a point where it's, it's okay that the picture's out there. I don't know where it's at. What I know is that they are allowing me to talk about masks. All the years I've been gone, I never have talked about masks. Oh, wow. Until the, last, they... the last two years. So something changed. Something changed. But you don't know what? I know that they're not doing exactly what I was talking about because they wouldn't let me talk about it if they were. So is that a good rule of thumb, that, that one reason why you would prevent people from talking about things, even if they happened decades ago, is that some aspect of it might still be in play? It's called sources and methods, and you protect them. Sources and methods, the two big categories that the CIA always keeps classified. You know, the story of Argo was George Tennant's idea. Tennant was CIA director when the story was declassified. To put out one good story, just one. He said all they ever hear about are the things that go wrong. And it's true. Those are the interesting stories, and they're the ones that find their way into the headlines. But nobody ever publishes a story that's just a good news story. Like, look what we did. So George Tennant said, let's tell them one. That started with the director absolutely, of the CIA. Absolutely. That was George Tennant. And my husband, Tony Mendez, initially said, no. Why? Tony was never going to tell that story. That's classified, sir. Tennant said, not anymore. It's not. When you put it like that, it makes me think, are there a hundred other stories like Argo that we just don't know about? There are other stories that the American public would, would love to know. But there is no need for them to know them. It wasn't just makeup artists Jana got to know. She sought out magicians, too. If professional illusionists could devise a way to trick the human eye and make a person disappear, well, in Cold War Moscow, a city crawling with KGB surveillance, that was the sort of skill that the CIA wanted to learn. Jana told me about one magician she got to know, a guy in LA who ended up doing work for the agency. And he made the case to her that entertainment and espionage are really not so different. You call it an operation, he said. We call it a performance. 
I guess what I'm wondering is about like other cultural areas. Like we heard a story about the CIA writing a song. Writing a song? Yeah. Did they sell many copies? I mean, was it? Yeah. Did they? Yeah. It's possible. There's the Dr. Zhivago story. So, you, but you've never heard of music. I have not, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't. The story about the song came to us from somebody who was an agency person who had heard it from an older generation agency person. But then we've talked to other people who are like, no, that couldn't possibly be true. What song are they talking about? Is so it, does song, it have a name? There, it does have a name. So there was a song at the end, at the very end of the Cold War. There was a band, a West German rock band called the Scorpions. Doesn't mean anything to you. See, I feel like you would have heard this story. So the Scorpions had a song that they um, that came out right, right around the time the Berlin Wall fell called Wind of Change, which is not a famous song in the United States, but is one of the biggest rock songs ever in Europe and was hugely popular with young people in the Soviet Union and is all about how change is coming. Winds of change. Wind of change. Do you, you want to know the song? Can I play it for you? That's my producer, Henry Malofsky, offering to play her the song on his phone. Yes. You don't know the song? I might. It's not ringing a bell. No. It's nice. It's nice, right? Yeah. John Amanda seemed much less skeptical of the idea that this story could be true than Bert Gerber or Milt Bearden had been. So Bert Gerber, who I talked to, said, didn't happen. Not true. If it was true, I would have known about it. He wouldn't have known about it. He wouldn't have known about it? Why not? Because he's such a nerd. (laughs) He wouldn't know. He wouldn't know. And in a world where the agency routinely works behind the scenes with people in the cultural sphere, like makeup artists or magicians, it seems much more plausible that they could have enlisted a songwriter. As we said goodbye, John had a mischievous grin on her face. Well, I like to think that it's true. I think, you know, I'm not going to spread it, but I think I'm just going to kind of carry it around thinking we wrote a song. (laughs) I hope we did. Back at the Sports Palace in Kyiv, the Scorpions put on a genuinely good show. These guys are old. They're my parents' age. But they're still rocking pretty hard. Klaus Meine, up close, is an elfin little man. He prances around the stage like a leprechaun, belting out the lyrics. The crowd knows every song, and they're going nuts. Before we get any further, I should confess that I'm not a huge metal fan. Never have been. And while I can appreciate the campy aspect of what the Scorpions are doing, it's campy. So I show up at the concert ready to enjoy it, but to enjoy it in a somewhat ironic fashion. And it was easy to maintain that distance through the laser show and the huge projection of CGI lightning bolts and half-naked women writhing robotically, and one kind of ridiculous song after another, from Big City Nights to Going Out with a Bang. But then... And the thousands of fans around me, 
Ukrainians of all ages, older people who remembered the song from when it came out, and younger people who learned it from their parents. They all raised their cell phones in the air, and we all seemed to sway together. You hear that? That yelp of blind enthusiasm? That was me. I mean, everybody in the place was singing. People were smiling. People had tears in their eyes. This song felt so different from all the others. And there were moments when Klaus would stop singing himself and just hold his mic stand out to the crowd. It occurred to me that for Ukrainians, this song about the collapse of the Soviet Union may not feel anachronistic at all. They're fighting a war with Russia, a war in which Vladimir Putin is trying to take back Ukraine, to reconstitute some of the old USSR, to unwind in real time the changes that Wind of Change is all about. In March 1968, a Soviet nuclear missile submarine, the K-129, was patrolling the Pacific when it suddenly vanished. Unable to reach the sub, Russia launched a huge search-and-rescue effort, sending out boats and planes to try and recover the vessel. They weren't able to find it. But the U.S. Navy, tipped off by this commotion, realized the Russians must have just lost a nuclear missile submarine. So Navy technicians set out to find the sub themselves. They managed to locate the submarine, three miles beneath the surface, on the ocean floor. It had sunk, for reasons that have never been determined, with 98 crew members on board. So now the CIA realized that the U.S. government knew where the sub was. And better yet, the KGB didn't know that they knew. If the agency could recover the vessel, it would be an intelligence bonanza. But how would you get it? To recover a sunken submarine from the bottom of the ocean would be a fiendish engineering problem. And even assuming you could do it, how do you do it without the Soviets realizing? Part of the reason the Argo operation worked was that it was the very opposite of discreet. Who would believe that opening a Hollywood production office and holding a press conference and taking out ads in the trades was a cover for a secret exfiltration? The whole thing screams, look at me. But it was sleight of hand, like the magician taught John Mendez. You call it an operation, we call it a performance. To recover the K-129 in total secrecy, the agency employed a similar gambit turning to one of the most famous men on the planet, the film director, aviation magnate, and notoriously eccentric billionaire, Howard Hughes. Hughes announced that he was going to build a massive ship in order to mine precious minerals on the ocean floor. The ship would be called the Hughes Glomar Explorer, with Glomar being short for Global Marine. With this cover, Hughes and the agency proceeded to spend $300 million constructing a vessel large enough to hide a salvaged missile submarine in a special cavity in its belly. 
When the Glomar sailed in 1974 to the spot in the Pacific where the K-129 had sunk, the Soviets knew that the ship was there. But they figured that was just crazy old Howard Hughes being Howard Hughes. The hatch in the bottom of the ship opened, and a giant claw descended on a cable down, down, until it reached the fallen submarine three miles below. The submarine had broken in two, but the claw latched onto the part that the CIA was most interested in and started pulling it up. Then, before it got to the Glomar, the piece the claw was holding broke in two, and part of it fell back to the ocean floor. The crew of the Glomar did manage to retrieve the other part of the submarine, and the ship returned to the United States, with Russia none the wiser. Before long, though, the U.S. press corps began to hear stories about this crazy operation and to ask questions about the Soviet sub. How much of it had been recovered? Was there useful intelligence inside? There was this law, which was still relatively new at the time, the Freedom of Information Act, and it put the CIA in the awkward position of having to respond. They didn't want to say a thing about this sensitive mission. But because the country had just gone through Watergate, they didn't want to lie either. So the agency devised a devilish bit of dissimulation. When they were asked questions about the expedition, they responded, we can neither confirm nor deny. And so a phrase was born. The case was litigated, as you'd imagine, with press organizations arguing the public had a right to know more about the operation. But the CIA ended up prevailing in the courts. And in the decades since, the so-called Glomar response has become a standard evasive reaction to Freedom of Information Act requests that the agency would prefer not to answer. Watchdog groups talk about the Glomarization of FOIA. Journalists use it as a verb. I got Glomard. After I wrote my second letter to the CIA, spelling out the agency's activities in the cultural sphere and insisting that they produce any records about their relationship with the Scorpions, I got a response. The fact of the existence or non-existence of requested records is currently and properly classified, they wrote, saying that the very question of whether or not records relating to the Scorpions exist constitutes, quote, intelligence sources and methods information that is protected from disclosure. This is a final response, the letter said. The CIA can neither confirm nor deny. They glomarred me. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers, Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer, Michael Stender Auerbach. Sound design and mixing by Henry Malofsky. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold. This episode featured St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of Urban Tromafoy. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jake Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, William East, Xenia Barakovskaya, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Jifa Yadur, Roman Stepanovich, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Saiswis Gandaraja, Jonah Weiner, and Justina Gadzowska. Source material in this episode included MSNBC, the movie Argo, TV show Mission Impossible, and a radio interview from German Southwest Broadcasting. If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available for you to binge for free right now on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.